today we will continue from where we left off with the Anabhana Sutta last week. I hope uh, it was a long one, as you <laughs> may already know, uh, but uh, it is worth the effort to go through it carefully and uh, it's such an important sutta. It's one of those efforts, human efforts, that makes our lives worthwhile to be human beings, as far as I'm concerned. To have a brain, to have a mind that can process, understand, cognize things. Those abilities for me, they reach a maturity in order for us to be able to understand and, and take in things that are useful for us to navigate through life to cross the flood from this side of the shore to the other side. And this sutta allows us, gives us a map, if you will, through the mindfulness of the in and out breathing, anapanasati. So last week we covered the 16 steps of the four sets of four, the tetrads, the four tetrads, and uh, which was primarily the thing, the portion of the sutta that is dedicated more towards the breath per se. But as we saw, the first tetrad was the the thing that the, the the formulaic structure where it was addressing the breath itself. The others went into the jhanas, the others went into deeper and deeper layers of unlayering or cognizing. And if we recall, Lord Buddha was mentioning in the beginning of the sutta how the Anapanasati sutta is very much weaved together with the Satipatthana, as well as, as we're going to find out today, hopefully, uh, the Satta Bhajangas, which are the seven factors of awakening. Now, as I was mentioning to um, uh, some students this week, once you have those two powerful formulas, namely the Satipatthana and the Satta Bhajangas, if you're applying these, anything can turn into vipassana practice. It's so powerful. They are so powerful. Now, you don't have to necessarily do all of those two sets, meaning the Satipatthana and the Satabhajangas. But chances are that if you've come across the Dhamma, if you've been studying it or listening to it, reading it at some point, they nevertheless seep into your practice in different beautiful organic ways that are very personal also, I might add. So, we're going to be delving into uh, first the um, four establishments of mindfulness, the Satipatthana, continuing on from almost halfway through uh, from the Sutta and on. My goal is to finish <laughs> this today, so uh, we'll do our best. <laughs> All right, here we go. 
And how, bhikkhus, does mindfulness of the in and out breathing address and fulfills the objectives of the four establishments of mindfulness when it is continuously developed and cultivated intently? Here, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu is applying the steps whereby he knows if he is breathing short or long, whether breathing in or out, or when he knows the body of the breath from the beginning to end, meaning covering it from starting point, the middle, all the way to the end, without letting go of the breath. That's the whole body of the breath. Uh, knows the body of the breath from beginning to end, whether he is breathing in or, not, in or out, or when he is settling down the breath's movement within the physical body, whether he is breathing in or out, meaning the kaya sankara, then, <clears throat> excuse me, being thus keenly aware of his breathing, he carefully stays with the body, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. For I say, bhikkhus, that by staying closely with the body through the breath, does the mindfulness of in and out breathing become an aspect of establishing oneself with the body. Now here, and uh, by the term, the phrase, an aspect of the body refers to the breath being an extension um, or a manifestation, um, um, therefore a physical event, the physicality, if you will, uh, that is taking place. And which is very important to consider uh, because we are becoming conscious, uh, consciously aware of, uh, if you remember the five khandas, the, four, the five aggregates. When we say about a physical manifestation or an event, we're talking specifically of the rupa khanda, the form as that we hear about, name and form, nama, rupa. This is the rupa aspect of it, and which... Uh, has within it the four primary elements, the chatu uh, mahadhatus um, that we've covered before, but I'll briefly go over them. Um, earth, water, fire, and air, which stand for solidity, um, um, uh, fluidity, heat, and uh, uh, movement. Um, so, so let's, and, and already you can tell uh, as Lord Buddha lays it out here in this paragraph, how we are talking about the first aspect of the Satipatthana, meaning the body, Kāyānupassana. He doesn't use the word, but we see it all throughout these words. It is for this reason that the bhikkhu carefully stays with the body, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Now, with the phrase establishing oneself in the body, um, which again, it's the Kāyānupassana portion of the Satipatthana, uh, especially in connection to shunning any thoughts of aversion or, or uh, desiring, craving after the world. What we're talking about here is overcoming the nivarana, the five hindrances. If you recall, they are kama chanda, the desire for sense pleasures, uh, 
the diapoda, which is ill will. Uh, then we have the, the twin sets, the third, which is sloth and torpor. Then we have the restlessness and worry or remorse as the fourth set. And then we have the skeptical doubt. These are the nivarana, the five hindrances, which, as you might know, happen to be the major obstacles um, on experiencing the jhanas or even going deeper in the practice. So shunning any thoughts of desiring or aversion is referring to no longer being caught in the clutches of these five hindrances. And um, so if we, we are, then it means that, you know, it's, it's, they push us down, they bring us down. And if you've ever sat for meditation, you know, when worries come, you know, when you get agitated, usually restlessness comes in, um, or just sloth and laziness or drowsiness. So uh, that is what that shunning, uh, desiring or aversion towards the world, because we're going to be hearing that a lot. Furthermore, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu is applying the steps whereby he is sensitive to experiencing joy, whether he breathes in or out, or when he is sensitive to experiencing gladness. Now we're talking about the second tetrad, if you remember from last week. Uh, uh, whether he breathes in or out, or when he becomes sensitive to his thoughts and feelings, whether he breathes in or out, or when he quiets down his thoughts and feelings, bringing them to complete stillness, whether he breathes in or out. Then, being thus keenly aware of his breathing, he carefully stays with his feelings, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Here we were talking about entering into the jhanas, uh, the second tatrad of the Anapanasati, as we discussed last week, is addressing the entering into the jhanas, because we have joy, and then followed by gladness, major, major attributes of jhanas, specifically the first and second jhanas. Uh, I say this because, because there is a strong connection between feelings and the in and out breathing, which when they are carefully attended to by staying closely with the feelings experienced through the breath, does the mindfulness of in and out breathing become an aspect of establishing oneself within feelings? This is referring to the Satipatthana's second establishment of mindfulness, meaning Vedana Rupasana which is the observation or mindfulness of, of feelings. It is for this reason that the bhikkhu carefully stays with his feelings, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Um, we're moving away from the physicality of phenomena, of our relationship with living experiences has moved from the physical to the, if you will, the emotional, because um, the first portions of the jhanas um, have, have to take us as soon as possible away from the body. That's why slowly, slowly, that sensation is withering away, if you will. It's becoming more and more and more subtle. 
And that is why we see here the reference being for joy. Um, and as the person develops their practice and going deeper, uh, when they don't have the joy, it is an interesting uh, <laughs> phenomenon where, where, where the student might come and say, what's happening? What's happening? I'm not feeling joy. I'm not feeling anything. Well, because the relationship with the body, it's most, if you will, the, the grossest, but at the same time, in its subtle sense, the grossest um, <laughs> uh, is, is, is related with joy, and, you know, the body and joy coming together. And that is like the climax of what the body can tell us. Now, when we remove the joy factor, suddenly it's like a, a plane, an airplane that lost one of its wings, major wings. And now it feels like, what am I going to do? It's, I'm lost. I am, what am I doing? So there is no relationship with anything other than something more sublime than joy. And this is where the teacher's job is uh, to soothe the mind of the meditator, allowing the person to start to trust more and more until they start having more of an appreciation to upekka which is already coming into the scene, already developing, already developing until they get to settle, settle, settle. Uh, because the connection with the body is becoming less and less and less until there's none, until there is contact being made to the body or with the body from, from the outside, usually. So, um, okay. Furthermore, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu is applying the steps whereby he is sensitive to experiencing the mind, whether he is breathing in or out, or when he gladdens the mind, whether he is breathing in or out, or while collecting the mind in samadhi by steadying it, whether he is breathing in or out, or while freeing the mind, whether he is breathing in or out, then being thus keenly aware of his breathing, he carefully stays with the mind striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Uh, again, the hindrances will keep coming in and out as the person becomes better uh, adapted and able to navigate through them. And it's a personal journey because every one of us have or has our own ways of negotiating uh, through the hindrances. But um, by the way, if you notice, Lord Buddha is beautifully going over the tetras that we covered so far last week by using the formula or the language of the Satipatthana, if you will, because he's pointing out, he's, he's listing them all out again, just in case the students have missed or have forgotten about what were the steps of the Anapanasati. Um, again, uh, collecting the mind in samadhi is uh, taking the, the uh, avoidance of, of the nivarana, the hindrances, to another level because you're going deeper into the jhanas at this point. Uh, because now, if you notice, the object is the chitta anupassana, 
The third aspect of Satipatthana that Lord Buddha is, is talking about. However, bhikkhus, I say that proper development of the mind cannot take place for the bhikkhu who is without focus nor attentiveness towards his in and out breathing. But by paying close attention to the quality of the mind through the breath, does the mindfulness of in and out breathing become an aspect of establishing oneself within the mind. It is for this reason that the bhikkhu carefully stays with the mind, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Staying with the breath equals with staying with your object of meditation. Okay, we know that. But staying with the breath also means staying with the mind. That's what we're seeing here. The connection. Uh, it's no longer just the breath, something to do with the breath. Uh, something superficial like that compared to how deep it can take us. In fact, uh, in the Maharahulovada Sutta, Lord Buddha turns to, uh, which is from the Majjhima Lord Buddha turns to his son, um, Venerable Rahula, at the end of the sutta, and he says, um, I think I have it written somewhere here. Yes. Um, and when the uh, meditation on the in and out, he's, he's addressing Rahula. Uh, this is from uh, Majjhima Nikaya 62. Um, so at the end of the sutta, Lord Buddha is addressing Rahula after he gave him a very clear set of instructions on how to practice. He says, and when the meditation on the in and out breathing is cultivated and developed in this manner, Rahula, even the last breath does not leave your body without your full awareness and knowledge of it. That's deep. <laughs> That's pretty poignant. That is strong. Even the very last breath does not leave the body without our full awareness and knowledge of it. So you're not living life, you know, life is not happening to you. You are leading your life. You are practicing. And that is an aspect of living the holy life the way I see it. Furthermore, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu is applying the steps while experiencing and watching impermanence, whether he is breathing in or out, or while experiencing and seeing detachment, whether he is breathing in or out, or while experiencing cessation, whether he is breathing in or out, or while experiencing relinquishment as he keeps giving up, whether he is breathing in or out, then being thus keenly aware of his breathing, he carefully stays with the various mind objects and their relationships, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. This is uh, in reference to the fourth Satipatthana, which is Dhamma Anupassana. Dhamma, in this case, are not Lord Buddha's teachings. They are phenomena, or sometimes referred to as mind objects. I'd like to add uh, the, the, the qualifier um, uh, relationships as well, in this case, uh, mind objects and their relationships, um, which includes um, several things, obviously, uh, starting with, or, you know, we can start with the, um, the order isn't important, but 
they include the five hindrances, the five khandhas, uh, including the, the four noble truths, uh, among others. Therefore, because he wisely abandons thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world, as he restfully stays close and watches over with an equanimous state of mind. And by paying close attention to the various mind objects and their relationships through the breath, does the mindfulness of in and out breathing become an aspect of establishing oneself through wisely understanding the various mind objects and their relationships. It is for this reason that the bhikkhu carefully stays with the mind, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. So steps uh, one through four were the kayanupasana of the steps, I mean, by the tetrad steps. Then we saw from steps five to eight, the vedananupasana being covered. Then we just saw steps nine, 10, 11, and 12 covering the chittanupasana. And now we just saw steps 13, 14, 15, and 16 covering the dhammanupasana. Uh, which um, again, they are the, the for the dhammas or the the relationships of those mental objects or uh, things to be cognized. They usually are referred to in the Satipatthana as the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six senses, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. But they're not just this. It what is whatever comes up in the practice at that level of practice, that is, a mental object as such. This because is how mindfulness of the in and out breathing addresses and fulfills the objectives of the four establishments of mindfulness when it is continuously developed and cultivated intently. So here is where Lord Buddha uh, stops discussing just uh, the relationship of the sati, uh, Anapanasati with the Satipatthana. Now he's going to move to pointing out uh, what I was trying to say earlier, that so long as we have the Satipatthanas and the seven factors of awakening, you can never go wrong. You can choose any meditation object. So long as they're there, you're going to be practicing Vipassana and you are going to see and taste the deathless. That's what we'll see. Uh, hopefully the deathless, but <laughs> uh, at this point, but as we go over, we'll see the connection that Lord Buddha is trying to make. And how, because do the four establishments of mindfulness address and fulfill the objectives of the seven factors of awakening when they are continuously developed and cultivated intently? Uh, Here, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu carefully stays with the body, being keenly aware while striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world, then continuous mindfulness is easily sustained and established in him. Because of this, whenever the bhikkhu is established in continuous mindfulness, the awakening factor of mindfulness becomes activated in him as he strives to sustain and develop it further in order to reach its perfection. So the point here in the sutta is to simply establish our mindfulness in such a way where it simply doesn't move. 
doesn't go away. We don't lose focus of that mindfulness. We keep having a steady eye on it. We really know, really, really know and observe the breathing. It's very process that's taking place. So as you saw, we're not nitpicking as to where the breath is coming from, etc. You passed that point long time ago. And that is why it's important in the practice. This is not an intellectual affair. The Dhamma is not intellectual. Okay, yes, we use the intellect, we use logic, we use the rational mind. Of course, Lord Buddha pointed those out as uh, aspects of knowing something, of knowledge. But they fall so short from the experiencing of uh, the phenomenon, whatever it may be. And this is why I see so many times students get caught up in the cobweb of their mind, of their mental proliferations in the name of Dhamma. And their egos come in and their own conceits come in, um, wrong view basically, comes in. Actually, it never left in some cases, but it makes it look like we are talking about the Dhamma, so it must be Dhamma, so I am practicing Dhamma, right? Wrong. So the breath can be, I think I mentioned last week something like, your marker, your spy, if you will, to life. It will tell you what is wrong about your practice and how and what is going on in the mind. This is not just about the jhanas. The satipatthanas are not about the jhanas. It's just simply one aspect of the description of the 16 uh, steps of the tetras. We need to be more concerned about how am I carrying uh, my awareness with the breath? Is it there in the first place? So we are developing a much deeper sense of awareness and capacity to, to see beyond the obvious, even the way that we like to interpret things, meaning our own narratives of how the world is, or in this case, how the Dhamma is supposed to be. This is what Lord Buddha is saying. Well, how do you know? Let's reconnect with the breath and go deeper into the finer nuances, penetrate the finer nuances of our own mind. And that is how we are going to be establishing this very beautiful bridge between the, both the awakening factors, seven factors of awakening, and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Satipatthana, but specifically, as we're going through the seven factors of awakening, each of these we'll see, like we just saw with the mindfulness of the body, how it fulfills the awakening factor of mindfulness. Because if we are with the, with the breath all the time, then we are mindful all the time. Which, by the way, takes our practice of Sati to a whole new level. So the perfection of, if you will, of, of these seven factors uh, individually uh, um, pointed at or individually selected. So now we're looking at mindfulness, which is sati, the first of the seven. Each of these have now reached their fulfillment or their ultimate state in the meditator. 
and then we're going we're gonna to come to the joy, for example. That is the highest joy that one can experience. Okay. But they are off-tune. They might be perfect, but the person has to still harmonize them, balance them out, balance the seesaw, if you will. And all seven of them are on that platform of the seesaw, but they're off, wobbled. They're not lined up. And that is what the practice is going to allow us to be doing. While living mindfully in this manner, the bhikkhu begins to thoroughly investigate as he wisely examines whatever state he is experiencing with discernment. Because of this, the awakening factor of investigation of states, Dhamma Vijaya, becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. We don't take a time out from mindfulness. We don't take it off like we do with coats and, you know, heavy-duty clothing when it gets warmer. We don't hang it somewhere. We don't put it on a shelf. We're always keeping with the mindfulness. Sometimes we lose track of the breath. That's okay. Reconnect with the body. How is your body touching the surfaces around you? Can you feel your clothing through your skin? Are your hands touching each other? Okay. Can you feel the warmth that your hands coming together are creating? So even though you might have temporarily lost connection with the breath, there's so much data still coming in. The problem is there's no sati. So who cares if it's the breath or something else? Use them. That's what Lord Buddha is saying. Sometimes you lose track of the breath, but you're still feeling the strong emotion, whatever it may be. Maybe your heart is jubilant because of you seeing someone or something that was just touching or bad or disgusting or unwholesome. That's still a feeling. Use that. That's why Satipatthana is such a powerful tool. Because ultimately it is teaching us, the Satipatthana is teaching us to do life, underline do, to practice life, to taste life. So it's not a, a, an about affair. That's why when I say that Dhamma is not, nothing to do with intellectualism or things like that, because it is practice-based, it is life. It is not about life, it is life. It is patipada, as Ajahn Man would say. It is a practice-based path. That's why it's even called, you know, the, the Eightfold Path. It's a path. It's a magga. What do we do with the path? We walk on it. We don't stand there on the path like a cactus tree. Even a cactus moves, you know, grows. So while wisely investigating his mental states in this manner, the bhikkhu experiences a surge of tireless energy swelling up within him. Because of this, the awakening factor of persevering energy becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. When experiencing such energy within him, suddenly there arises joy in the heart. Because of this, the awakening factor of joy becomes activated in him 
as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. It's a wonderful thing how Lord Buddha is laying this out in front of us. And if we follow that train of thought of if well, this path is all about practice, then the meditator gets to taste for himself or herself how by putting in uh, persevering energy, unremitting effort into the practice, meaning if you are dealing with the nivarana or one of the hindrances, let's say the sloth, you're sleepy, you're drowsy. Oh, okay, instead of giving up, instead of just handing the keys over to laziness, push a little bit more. With kindness, though, with consideration, but with willfulness. That is going to, that mustering up of extra energy soon turns into joy. It's a wonderful mechanism. It's a wonderful transformation. You can even call it an alchemy, alchemical process, where something wonderful happens. Even though five seconds ago it felt like it was the end of the world and you were going to put the, your head on the pillow and sleep because your body was like, I'm tired, Bonte. I can't do this anymore. Well, let's try a few more minutes. Just one minute. How, how about 30 seconds? How about one single breath? And that is how it expands our level of tolerance of how much we can give or take, depending on the context. This is how we also practice sila, for example. This is how we can bring all the three trainings together, sila, samadhi, panya, together. In the uh, Sedaka Sutta of the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, a wonderful sutta where you have a, uh, a story of uh, a brief one, not a long one, where um, there's an acrobat. Meda um, Katalika, uh, I think that was his name, Meda Katalika or something like that. So uh, he happens to be the teacher, and they are on a pole. Uh, they're like almost like if you ever come across Cirque du Soleil, things like that, acrobats. So they are doing a very demanding maneuver up on the uh, pole or ropes, something like that. I can't remember exactly. But the teacher is saying, oh, they're standing on each other's shoulder while on a post or something high up from the ground. And the teacher says to his student, who's underneath him, supporting him, uh, you protect me and I will protect you. That way we will both be protecting each other. And the student apparently is wiser because he says, no, 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 teacher. He says, I protect myself. You protect yourself. And that way we will both be protecting each other. And the teacher also sees the point of the student and he says, yes, you are correct. Now, why do I mention this? Because Lord Buddha mentions the sutta from the Sangyutta Nikaya to be such a powerful clarifier of what we mean by practicing the Satipatthana. Because by uh, protecting 
oneself, uh, we protect others, Lord Buddha says. And having protected others, we're also protecting ourselves. Well, what is the connection with mindfulness? Everything. Everything. If you've ever seen those Arctic expeditions or mountaineers, where, when they go up, um, whether it's the Andes in South America or uh, in India or Nepal, when they're climbing um, the tallest mountains in the world, they have to pass over ravines and crevasses. And there's a line of mountaineers, climbers, and they tie themselves up from the waist with ropes to each other. There's usually like a space between them, like maybe two meters or, you know, 10 feet or something like that. Why though? In case one of them falls, the others can pull him out. So you will be pulling yourself out when you come to a moment of mindlessness, when you have forgetfulness of the breath. And you reconnect through the feelings or reconnect with, oh, what's going on with my mind? Why is it so tumultuous? Why is there so much movement, restlessness? That can become, because you're practicing at that point, the Dhammanupassana, the mindfulness of the mental objects. Ah, you're seeing the relation. Ah, you're also dropping down to Chittanupassana now. Ah, you're becoming more anchored. Oh, 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 I see now I'm, I'm becoming more relaxed. Oh, that's a feeling. Okay, and then you catch up with the breath. You see how they're all connected. So one person falls and the other ones can pull him out of the hole. So we're protecting ourselves through the practice of the Satipatthana. So when I say, please don't practice sila, your precepts, just in a superficial manner. This is what I'm referring to. This is what Lord Buddha is referring to, of course, where the mind is so present constantly that you know why you are not breaking a precept. You're not doing it to please anyone. You're doing it because you want to have that sense of peace in the mind. So, uh, and how Lord Buddha in that sutta of the Sedaka Sutta, Lord Buddha just to, I have made notes here of, about that. And he says, I, um, and how is it because that by protecting others, one protects oneself by patience, by harmlessness, by loving kindness and empathy. It is in such a way that you can protect others and by, uh, by protecting others, you also protect yourself. Remember that saying that I've shared with you so many times, like my parents used to say, son, you cannot wash both hands with one hand. You have to use both hands to wash them both. So uh, I find that quite relevant because uh, by protecting myself, I'm also practicing the, seven, uh, the, the, the establishments of mindfulness. So I'm taking ownership of my life in this time, in this place. I am responsible for what I'm saying. I am responsible and aware of what I'm feeling. 
even if what I'm feeling is not good, at least, at least I am mindful of it, which is huge. My hands are on the steering wheel of the car. I'm driving. That's what I'm saying when I'm practicing Satipatthana. And if you're truly practicing Satipatthana in this Dhamma and discipline, you're also going to be practicing Sila. And if there's no right view, then there is no Satipatthana. If there's no Satipatthana, then there is no proper practice of Sila. It's just superficial. Like some people walk around and they list the kind of how many precepts they keep. Pointless, useless, stupid. So let's continue back to the Anapanasati. When experiencing such energy, oh, we, we talked about the joy factor, okay. Um, with the heart thus full of joy, soon his body and mind experience tranquility. Because of this, the awakening factor of tranquility becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. So when joy happens, which is the enlightenment uh, awakening factor, that high level of joy, because there's no more, no other place to go, the mind settles. It's like reaching the bottom of the ocean and you're resting. Oh. It's also fine powdery sand down there. You rest. The mind slowly is now becoming able to accept stillness and tranquility because this will take us to uh, the um, what we'll see uh, in a minute to Samadhi and eventually to Upekka. Uh, so let me just do uh, mention the Samadhi part. With the body appeased and tranquil thus, he experiences gladness and the mind becomes collected into Samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of collectedness of mind becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. In the Ichanangala Sutta, again from the Sangyutta Nikaya, Lord Buddha says how by, uh, this is the bhikkhu who is still in training, who's not an arahant yet, who has not yet achieved his heart's desire, Lord Buddha says, but he's still pointing his you know, his trajectory still is towards the deathless, the Amatadhatu, uh, which is Nibbana. Um, um, the development and cultivation of mindful, uh, of, 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 of collectedness of mind or samadhi through the in and out breathing, he says, leads to the asavas. That's why, including in the, the Anguttara Nikaya, you have this in the Book of Ones where he, Lord Buddha talks about mindfulness of the body and what that usually entails is for him in that context, he's referring to mindfulness of the body through the breath. And if the person has mindfulness of the breath, then the person, and if they're practicing assiduously, carefully, then their only destination is the deathless, he says. Sooner or later, you're going to get there. You're going to hit it. You're going to taste it. Is mindfulness directed to the body. 
is the way to the deathless. Uh, so collectedness of mind. Now we go to the last part of that. The bhikkhu then equanimously observes with wisdom the mind that is collected in samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of equanimity becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. Sometimes I've seen people who equate equanimity with just a sense of impassivity, some type of a uh, inertia, if you will, no longer moving or just feeling okay, a sense of relaxation. And they, because their hearts or minds or egos are so eager to, uh, it's interesting, egos are always eager, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> just I don't know um, side note um, tangent definitely but uh, when the person is in equanimity there must be present wisdom you cannot have equanimity without wisdom as we see in this Dhamma and discipline of Lord Buddha they cannot be apart because already you had to go through so much development. Remember, the second of the seven factors of awakening is what? Dhamma vichaya, which is all about wisdom. And they look at each other. They have to, it's, uh, as Bhante Nyananda would say, you have to have the element of wisdom and equanimity in order for the person to attain Nibbana. Because sometimes uh, we might see individuals who have reached uh, a level of practice that is, although very advanced, however, they are still stuck because Mara is going to be always there by your side, Mara. Even after the person becomes an arahant, Mara is still there trying to, I mean, he's very incorrigible. Always trying to push and push and push and try to make it, especially if the person has not yet attained. And this becomes one of the biggest hurdles. Where that state of inertia, sometimes in the mind of the meditator, uh, gets to be called, oh, I must have attained an anagami, or I must have attained, I must have reached a deep level of nobility. No, you haven't, in many cases, so long as there is no equanimity, because the mind is becoming sharper and sharper. So what I'm trying to get at is basically, even though Dhamma Vichaya is the second of the seven factors of awakening, that does not mean that we stop working on Dhamma Vichaya. It's still being sharpened, sharpened even at the level of upekka. So it's never uh, a state of just being sterile, just uh, inertia, being stuck almost. Because sometimes I've heard of meditators who claim to be in the upper, higher arupajanas, man, they get bored. Well, that's not going to happen if it is true equanimity. Because boredom means there's craving in the heart. Ah, interesting. But how can the person know this? If they're truly in equanimity, then their wisdom will say, excuse me, uh, hello, uh, what are you doing? This is not 
equanimity, okay? So we still have to work some more. So don't bask in your laurels. So we got work to do. Let's continue. Okay, reconnect with the breath. Okay, we got this. We can do this. Okay. So that is one of the reasons why I say allow. Just, it's okay. Start with the beginner's mind. Be forgiving of yourself. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Now, uh, because Lord Buddha is connecting the Satipatthana with the seven factors of awakening and Satipatthana, we just went over the body portion. So you have the same formula being played with feeling, addressed, not played, being addressed through the gaze or spectacles of feelings, then the mind, and then mind objects. So we're going to see um, seven times three, so we're going to see 21 uh, mentions. However, Lord Buddha is going to be, so it's a repetition in a sense. Uh, however, it is, um, the heading of it is, uh, as you see, similarly bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu carefully stays with his feelings, being keenly aware while striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world, then continuous mindfulness is easily sustained and established in him. Because of this, whenever the bhikkhu is established in continuous mindfulness, the awakening factor of mindfulness becomes activated in him as he stri strives to sustain and develop it further in order to reach its perfection. But if you noticed in the beginning, the Lord Buddha says, whenever the bhikkhu carefully stays with feelings, the first set of seven, Lord Buddha was addressing uh, carefully stays with the body. Now he's saying carefully stays with the feelings. So now we're talking about the seven uh, in connection to the second Satipatthana. Uh, a whiteboard can really work or a PowerPoint, but I'm not a fan of PowerPoints. Uh, especially when it comes to the Dhamma. So my apologies there, but I'm trying to draw <laughs> uh, pictures through words uh, for you. I'm doing, I'm trying anyhow. So I hope it works for you. So um, <sighs> okay, so um, but before we go uh, further, there is a sutta, uh, it's called the simile of the lamp, simile of the lamp, where Lord Buddha says how while he was still an unawakened bodhisattva striving to become awakened, he would practice the mindfulness of in and out breathing. And that way he would avoid getting his body fatigued and his eyes especially. Uh, and that was the thing which took him uh, and uh, to the point where he was able to destroy the defilements, the, the three kilesias, loba, dosa, moha, lust uh, or greed, um, hatred and delusion. So I wanted to mention that because I hear sometimes from students how they are fatigued so um, the, uh, the simile of the lamp in the Sangyutta Nikaya um, uh, addresses that beautifully in connection to the breath, uh, which I was just mindful of. Um, and in it, he, Lord Buddha says how in connection to 
the likes and dislikes, and especially pleasant feeling, because we're talking about feelings here, awareness of feelings, uh, painful feelings, the second type of feeling, and the uh, neutral type of feeling. This meditation allows the person to also penetrate by seeing how these things transition between one and the other, between one into the other. They seep into each other because you, because you have these streams of consciousnesses coming in and out constantly thanks to the six sense doors. So you're never going to have just one type of feeling. So as a psychotherapist uh, working with patients, when people would come and say, oh, I'm always in pain, I'm always in pain. Um, after I've connected with them and built a, a somewhat of a, a empathic relationship where they see that approach that I'm having and they see that I mean well, um, I will go ahead and gently challenge that statement of theirs by always suffering. What do you mean always? At that moment, let's say I would be giving them, let's say, or they would be drinking water and they were warm and now they're drinking water to put the bottle down or the glass down and they're like still continuing on their sentence of how much torture life is for them. And I say, what, what, what happened right there? Hold on a second, hold that thought. You just had a drink. Was the pain there with you? Let's be honest. Initially, they would say, yes, yes. I was like, okay, after we decipher and pull all these things out, and they say, yeah, I guess there are breaks. Ah. Impermanence. Anicca. Anicca is not something out there. It's not just about the world changing or our bodies changing. Yes, that is true. But so what? Ultimately, the Dhamma is all about what's going on here. It's an inside-out affair in that sense. Seeing, working through our own world, seeing our own narratives, our own wrong views. Lord Buddha, when he talked about wrong view, he wasn't talking about the wrong view of other people. <laughs> he was talking about our wrong views, plural. And it's funny because when someone got, comes to that aha moment, even if it's a real aha moment, uh, they want to come outside and tell everybody about their wrong views, the other's wrong view, and impose their right view upon them. Well, guess what? That is wrong view again. Because you're not coming from a, the correct place of understanding. So whether the person is feeling pleasant feeling, unpleasant or painful feeling or neutral feeling, the mind, and he mentions this also in the simile of the lamp, Lord Buddha, how he was able to also see that they are all impermanent despite what badges they were wearing, what insignia they had on, what labels we give them. Essentially, all three types of feelings leave us empty-handed. And that's why we use memory and our sankharas to constantly 
relive them. Sometimes you have people who will feel guilty if they walk away from a painful experience. Yes, I used to be depressed. Yes, yes, yes. But are you depressed now? No, but you're making yourself depressed. I guess. Why? Because you are thinking about them. You're bringing memories. And the memory is what is being used to animate, to energize this thing called papanchas, the proliferation of thoughts. So if you are reaching the higher levels of equanimity of the seven factors of awakening, be careful of the papanchas because they can mimic everything. They're very good chameleons. And they're the ones who create the restlessness in the mind. So, uh, while living mindfully in this manner, the bhikkhu begins to thoroughly investigate as he wisely examines whatever state he is experiencing with discernment. Because of this, the awakening factor of investigation of states becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. By the way, um, when you come across repetitions, we live in a culture that even translators today, and for the last, I don't know, 100 years or so, they shun the idea of repetitions. I remember, remember when I was a child, sometimes if I didn't know, let's say, my vocabulary or whatever term that the teachers were teaching, they would give us standards. Some of you might recall this where we had to write it a hundred times over. I hated it. And sometimes it became a homework that I had to take home to do those hundred times over and I would have to write it. Um, the interesting thing is that as a teacher later on, as a high school teacher, I was doing that same thing sometimes with some students, not to repeat a bad cycle, but simply because I had seen the value of it. Of course, I wouldn't push them to ridiculous lengths like do it 200 times. Usually it would be 50 or 100, depending on the sentence they have to write. But what am I saying? Why am I bringing that up here? Lord Buddha loved the usage of repetitions. And there was never... Uh, a time where there were no reasons for something that Lord Buddha said or did. Every single thing he did had a purpose. So for that reason, I encourage you to stay because uh, with whatever I'm saying, don't blank out, don't go somewhere else. And um, because the audience that Lord Buddha had around him, yes, he had all these different levels of the nobility, of noble Sangha, from Arahants down to Sotapannas, from Magga level to path level of each. So you had eight categories of individuals sitting there. So he was saying this not necessarily for the Arahants, but he was saying it for those who have yet to attain what is yet to be, who have not attained what is yet to be attained. So, and if you look at the numerical discourses, Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of Fives, 
when Lord Buddha describes as to the ways that a person can taste the Nibbana, one of the ways is repetition, hearing it, listening it, reading it. So many people attain Sotapanna stage, Sakadagami stage, through just hearing, even Anagami stage, even Arahantship, as the case was, was with Venerable Bahia and a bunch of other people. So there's so much wealth there. So try to be meditatively uh, taking it in uh, the words of Lord Buddha, even though now we're going to go over the we're going over the feeling aspect of the of the instructions. Um, when experiencing such energy within him, suddenly there arises joy in the heart. Because of this, the awakening factor of joy becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. With the heart thus full of joy, soon his body and mind experience tranquility. Because of this, the awakening factor of tranquility becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. With the body appeased and tranquil, thus he experiences gladness and the mind becomes collected into samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of collectedness of mind becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. The bhikkhu then equanimously observes with wisdom the mind that is collected in samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of equanimity becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. Similarly, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu carefully stays with the mind, now we go into chitta being keenly aware while striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world, then continuous mindfulness is easily sustained and established in him. By the way, again, when we talk about shunning any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world, anytime you sit to meditate or trying to bring the mind to a state of collectedness uh, or you know, you, you've experienced some jhanas, let's say. The hindrances will come and they usually come in the shape of, oh, I want to have whatever happened yesterday to happen again. Or that jhana I have experienced, oh, it would be so great if I could have a, again a taste of that. Or even that state of stability or equanimity. It would be so good if I have that again. That is desiring the world in the sense desiring or shunning whatever's happening let's say the mind is restless so now there is this shadow boxing or we're fighting against this state of restlessness well it's not going to happen then whatever it is that we want to take place in that meditation period so that's why we need to pull our hands away from anything other than the object of meditation, whether it's metta, whether it's the breath in this case, whatever it may be, even if it's maranasati, the contemplation or meditation on death, or the asubha, or the repulsive, 
etc., etc. Because of this, whenever the bhikkhu is established in continuous mindfulness, the awakening factor of mindfulness becomes activated in him as he strives to sustain and develop it further in order to reach its perfection. While living mindfully in this manner, the bhikkhu begins to, to thoroughly investigate as he wisely examines whatever state he is experiencing with discernment. Because of this, the awakening factor of investigation of states becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. While wisely investigating his mental states in this manner, the bhikkhu experiences a surge of tireless energy swelling up within him. Because of this, the awakening factor of persevering energy becomes activated in him as he strives to, de to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. And they all feed on each other. It's a cycle. If you move one part, it's like the gears inside of a watch or an intricate machinery. If you move one gear, it moves everything else. If you've ever seen the insides of a watch, uh, you will see that. So the same things with the seven factors of awakening. If you are being more and more and more mindful, slowly you have some pajanya coming in, clear comprehension. What is that? That's Dhamma which is wisdom. It's Panya there. Because you're seeing a process. That seeing indicates eyes, vision, understanding. And because you're understanding more and more and more and more, now you have the, uh, the purpose is a lot clearer as to why we're doing this. This is when meditation becomes self-propelled. You don't have to hear me complaining to you or telling you to sit more or to dedicate more time because now it is a very personal affair. You're invested in it. The depth of your understanding of the peace of mind as you're beginning to taste more and more sacred spaces within you, if you would call it like that. You're tasting more of a sanctity within you. Ah, okay. So then you find more energy put, to put in. And when you put in more energy, all of a sudden, whoop, there's joy coming up. It's like you were fanning the flames, the fire. There's the fire of joy coming up. And everything gets brighter. The mind gets brighter. Even if you were lost in drowsiness and sloth and laziness, you were sleepy, Boom. It's like you turned on the lights. In the wintertime when we were children, if we had power uh, and we had to get up early in the morning, my mother would come and turn on the lights. It's like, mom, turn off the lights. Why? Because she, we have to get up and go to school. It's dark outside. So the joy is like the light. But you see how they are feeding each other. It's like the gears moving. One gear moves, the others move. That's why we keep saying mindfulness, mindfulness, sati, sati, left and right. When experiencing such energy within him, suddenly there arises joy in the heart. Because of this, the awakening factor of joy becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. 
With the heart thus full of joy, soon his body and mind experience tranquility. Because of this, the awakening factor of tranquility becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. With the body appeased and tranquil thus, he experiences gladness and the mind becomes collected into samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of collectedness of mind becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. The bhikkhu then equanimously observes with wisdom the mind that is collected in samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of equanimity becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. When we are with the breath and we're able to see even the very last breath before it leaves the body, as Lord Buddha was saying in the Maharahulavada Sutta to his son Rahula, we start feeling the end of the body approach. Now, you don't have to wait for death, actual death, to experience this. Every time you're experiencing the breath's end, you can experience this. But the question is, can I be mindful enough to be steady enough to be curious and invested enough with the breath that I could go ahead and put my ear to it, as it were? Can I stay with the breath? So in the simile of the lamp, Lord Buddha talks about how the oil lamp depends on oil and the wick, the piece of string that's being lit, in order for there to be fire. But when the wick and the oil are used up, that lack of fuel is going to make sure that the light goes out. Last week, uh, um, students were asking about cessation, uh, Nibbana versus Niroda. And uh, many times Lord Buddha talks about Nirvana or Nibbana as the extinguishing of the extinguishment, the going out of this fire. Poof, goes out. And there's a lovely uh, sutta where you had Lord Buddha, his Arya Savakas, his Sangha sitting around him, but there's also the Devas and the Brahmas, and the Devas from different realms were present. And he was giving a beautiful sutta. Every sutta is beautiful. I don't know why I said beautiful. Uh, but at the end, as Lord Buddha is saying, is, is pointing out the extinguishment of the fire. One of the devas who was developed to inspire those people around who are listening, goes and does this to one of the uh, oil lamps, just does, poof, the fire goes out. And we have that from commentaries, of course. I remember this. I haven't seen the commentary, but um, I believe it was a teacher who mentioned this years ago, and I, it stuck with me. It's a beautiful image in the dark and 
you know, oil lamps are lit. And in, in India, and as well as in Sri Lanka and other places, you have these brass or copper made, these towers, small towers of oil lamps. They usually come in threes and they just rise up in progression. And um, just seeing that whole scene, that atmosphere, must have been just so impactful. Uh, because Lord Buddha says, when the body breaks down and life has come to an end and everything that is felt, since there is no one to be taking pleasure in it, no longer any pleasure to be taken in that experience, then everything becomes cool right here, right now. And that is from the uh, a simile of the lamp. Excuse me. Similarly, bhikkhus, whenever the bhikkhu carefully observes the various mind objects. Now we are on the last portion of the satipatthana um, being used as a window, as window or windows for the seven factors of awakening. Uh, carefully observes the various mind objects, dhammas or dhammanapasana, and their relationships in the mind, being keenly aware while striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desiring or aversion towards the world. Then continuous mindfulness is easily sustained and established in him. Because of this, whenever the bhikkhu is established in continuous mindfulness, the awakening factor of mindfulness becomes activated in him as he strives to sustain and develop it further in order to reach its perfection. So just because our path is all about practicality, Lord Buddha was the biggest pragmatic, if you think of it. The things that he taught must have been applicable. Otherwise, they would never leave his lips, his, the instructions he would give. So similarly here, when he's talking about Dhammanupassana and then connecting it to the mindfulness of the body, which is Satipatthana's first establishment, how can I use the dhammas that otherwise might seem to be so ephemeral, so in some many cases non-tangible, conceptual even? How can I use that as a way to bring mindfulness to the body? One might ask. Well, if we pick, for example, restlessness, which is one of the five hindrances which is part of the Dhammas, the Dhammanapassana. So if I just pick restlessness or sloth, oh, I'm feeling so drowsy, I'm feeling so lazy. Okay, what is the impact of that experience, of that Dhamma, if you will, on the body? How is restlessness being echoed, received throughout my body? If, uh, if there is truly restlessness, then you, 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 you will notice how while you're sitting to meditate or even when you are on the phone waiting for a call, your heart rate is going to start to increase. Your eyes are going to move a lot faster left and right erratically. Your thoughts the same way. You're going to be all over the place. And that's why when we are heated, Emotionally, restlessness is there. 
So the breathing is affected in everything. So by using the Dhammas, I just used one example. So you can use so many different ones there to reestablish yourself in the mindfulness of the body. So uh, while living mindfully in this manner, the bhikkhu begins to thoroughly investigate as he wisely examines whatever state he is experiencing with discernment. Because of this, the awakening factor of investigation of states becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. While wisely investigating his mental states in this manner, the bhikkhu experiences a surge of tireless energy swelling up within him. Because of this, the awakening factor of persevering energy becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. When experiencing such energy within him, suddenly there arises joy in the heart because of this, the awakening factor of joy becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. With the heart thus full of joy, soon his body and mind experience tranquility. Because of this, the awakening factor of tranquility becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. With the body appeased and tranquil thus, he experiences gladness, and the mind becomes collected into samadhi. Because of this, the awakening factor of collectedness of mind becomes activated in him, as he strives to develop it further, in order to reach its perfection. The bhikkhu then equanimously observes with wisdom the mind that is collected in samadhi. Because of this, the, uh, the awakening factor of equanimity becomes activated in him as he strives to develop it further in order to reach its perfection. Equanimity has this freeing quality to it for the heart. It liberates the heart every time we're equanimous. We must remember to to disengage from whatever our thoughts are telling us, because we stop breathing freely when we think about others, their defilements, how deceitful they are or might be, etc. It steals our breath away from us every time we are lost in the world. Whatever is happening in the world today, or if these occurrences were not happening, don't worry, there would be other things that would be going on. Disturbing things, things that agitate the mind, take away our sense of security, if you will, security that is placed outside of ourselves. So every time we're engaged in thoughts about the world, we stop breathing freely. The mind is no longer equanimous. So if that's the case, then we cannot be or stay with the breath because we're always fighting with someone else in the mind.
We're fighting in the mind, which is another reason why restlessness occurs. And if there's nobody outside of us to fight against, we always have ourselves, our expectations of ourselves, and how we are falling short, etc., from experiencing that state of, ah, I made it now, or something. So there needs to be this level of tolerance of ourselves, this sense of compassion and kindness, openness, allowance, permission to be, whatever is taking place, allowing it to be, but not to just let it be like that truck where we pulled away our hands from the steering wheel. No, 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 no. We're very much present with them. This because is how the four establishments of mindfulness address and fulfill the objectives of the seven factors of awakening when they are continuously developed and cultivated intently. And how because do the seven factors of awakening address and fulfill the objective of, the, of true knowledge and of release? Here because the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of mindfulness that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes and that comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. True knowledge or vijja and release or liberation, vimutti, cannot happen without seclusion. without detaching ourselves or cooling off from the things that surround us, whether they are habits, the company we keep, the close tight-knit, you know, tight-knit circles of friends, associations that we have, things that basically give us pleasure. Some time ago, um, there were a group of students. Um, um, some of you were part of it here um, that enjoyed being on, uh, you know, a digital platform to discuss the Dhamma. And every once in a while, I would check it just to see, you know, what what's the context of the discussions because I always encourage Kalyanamittas people to have Kalyanamittas because as Lord Buddha says, it's the whole path. Again, we need to look at what Lord Buddha says contextually. But we are people. We are social beings. We like pleasurable things. Yes, you might not be going after uh, carnal pleasures as your practice goes deeper. You are not trying to go to a casino or to go ahead and, and just you know, go to, you know, nightclubbing and things like that, yes, but there are other kinds of pleasure that can be easily, easily distracting. The Dhamma is one of those. It's actually, it's actually one of the uh, worst uh, in, in, in that category because a category of things that can 
pull us away from the practice because on the surface, hey, it's the Dhamma. How can it be bad? And this or that person is my Kalyanamitta. How can it be bad? And we are talking about the Dhamma. So it's just pure gold through and through. Yes, really. How is the quality of the mind? What is going on with your attitude before, during, and after each of the words that leave your mouth? Or while the Kalyanamitta, your friend, is talking? In the numerical discourses, Anguttara Nikaya, Lord Buddha and his Arya Savakas, especially Venerable Sariputta, talk very eloquently about the dangers in this tendency to talk, to seek company. Well, it's at least there that we are meditators. We like to sit together. We like to talk Dhamma every day or even every two days. Well, you are prolonging the extinction of your defilements. You are prolonging your stay in sansana, basically. Because you're fooling yourself. Because you think you're talking about Dhamma, but you're not. Go ahead and sit and practice. One of the suttas that I would like to cover with you in eventually uh, in the coming months, the new year, hopefully, would be the Maranasati Sutta. And that is the Meditation of Death. It's a beautiful sutta. It's actually uh, a two-set, a Patama and Dutiya Amaranasati suttas from the Anguttara Nikaya. And in it, Lord Buddha asks uh, bhikkhus, he talks first about uh, the meditation on death contemplation. And then you have a bunch of bhikkhus who say, Bhante, I practice meditation of death. The other one says, and everybody says, what? And Lord Buddha asks, how do you practice meditation of death? And the last two bhikkhus answer, well, without giving too much here um, and take from our time here, the reason why I'm saying this is because one of the bhikkhus says, the time that it takes for me to breathe out what I've already breathed in or to breathe in whatever I've already breathed out, that time period, either one of those two, that was too long, by the way, that short time period that I have, he says, Lord, that is the time I say to myself, even if I have that much life left in me, I will contemplate Lord Buddha's Dhamma. I will think about, I will ponder, I will at least be with the breath. I will be practicing sati. Buddha points him out. The other bhikkhu says also close, he says, the time it takes me to just chew and swallow one single mouthful of food. Next time, try it when you're sitting down to eat food. Can you bring your awareness of what's happening in that chewing process? Or can you think about your own 
uh, imminent death one day. And see what that does to your feelings. Does it jolt the mind? So it's so important for us to appreciate the seclusion aspect of the practice because you will not progress so long as you are looking forward to the next conversation, the next conversation. And some people do it every day, sadly. And that is the surest way to drive away from the deathless. Because what Venerable Sariputta and Lord Buddha say in the context of seeking company is people start to talk. You're with company, you have to talk, right? And the more you talk, even though you're talking on the Dhamma per se, in the beginning at least, it soon enough turns into idle chatter. Ah, so now we are even breaking precepts. Because now you are talking nonsense and slowly, slowly you're even going to be talking wrong views. What is adhamma? And that is going to make the heart become more jaded and more jaded and the mind more covered with avijja, not vidya, which is what we're after. Lord Buddha says vidya and vimutti, those two things cannot happen without secluding yourself. Talk to them. Talk to your friends once a week. Beautiful. It allows the soil to really take in the to, to give the nutrients to the seed and allow it to sprout its roots. To allow the seed to turn to this amazing, wondrous tree that bears fruit. You can't keep digging on it every single day. Talking, 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 talking. Even though it's Dhamma, so-called. Which, by the way, it's not, because you're talking too much. So, uh, the biggest attachments are the ones that have convinced us that they are good and they deserve to be around us. Touch them gently to see if the mind gets agitated. The moment the mind gets agitated, guess what? There's an attachment there, a strong one. It, it becomes a matter of survival in some cases. Oh, I can't touch. No, 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 Bhante, don't ask me to give that up. Well, there you go. We have found the second noble truth right there, which is the cause of Dukkha. You let go of that, all of a sudden you taste niroda, which is the cessation of that suffering. But you need to cultivate and maintain that. That is the fourth noble truth. Arya Tangika Magga, the Noble Eightfold Path. That's why it's there. So if we are attached to these pleasures, whatever they may be, we're just prolonging them. And we are prolonging also, by that action, we're prolonging our own suffering. That is the message of this good Dhamma, this true Dhamma, to put it plainly. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of investigation of states that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing 
and giving up. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of persevering energy that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of joy that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of tranquility that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of collectedness of mind that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. Similarly, the bhikkhu develops the awakening factor of equanimity that is maintained by seclusion, detachment, cessation, and comes to its completion in relinquishing and giving up. This, bhikkhus, is how the seven factors of awakening address and fulfill the objective of true knowledge and of release. This is what the Blessed One explained, and the bhikkhus were all deeply satisfied and delighted in the words spoken thus by the Blessed One. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Lord Buddha's disciples took the teacher's instructions and worked on them with unwavering perseverance, unremitting, relentless effort. And that's why they were able to achieve awakening. Lord Buddha describes it as a person who has caught fire, whose head has caught fire, whose hair is burning on his head. Can you prolong it? Can you say, let me, let me take care of this. Let me still continue chit-chatting with you over the phone. Yeah, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, get, get rid of the fire afterwards. Can you do that? No. Or when your clothes are on fire, he says. That is the level of ardency. That is the level of urgency, Sangvega, we need to bring to the practice. I've had individuals in the past who, in the nicest, kindly, uh, the most uh, compassionate way as students <laughs> towards a teacher, conveyed to me their discontent that I push too much. I push the sense of urgency too much. Bhante, why don't you take it easy a little bit? We don't have time to take it easy. We can go any moment. But many of us are just collecting more and more rubbish, garbage, pointless things, when all we need is, is right here. Whether you're practicing the metta in your heart as your meditation object, whether it is your contemplation of death, that we're all going to die. Nobody's going to get out of here alive. I've said that, and, and you already know that. 
but we forget that. So you have those that we carry with us all the time. Here we see the breath. Webu Sayadaw, an arahant of the 20th century, an arahant with the most exquisite, simple, beautiful smile, would always encourage his listeners, inspire them with sang vega, with sense of urgency, and he would always say, you already have enough tools. Lord Buddha has given you enough tools. Stop wasting time. And he says, you don't have to know many techniques. You only need one, he says. You only need one. Take it and go with it. Don't flip-flop. Don't change. Don't waste time. But know that one technique fully, clearly, deeply, perfectly. But you cannot know it unless you are with it. Can you really feel the texture of your heart when you're experiencing metta? Can you truly feel altruistic joy? Can you really feel the compassion, karuna, towards another person on a deep, deep level without losing your balance, though? without having it affect you, to wobble your center. And you see how metta or the Brahma Viharas can and do take a person straight to Nibbana. But there is a caveat there. We need to apply the Satipatthana and the seven factors of awakening with them. Everything has to have these two if we are practicing Lord Buddha's teachings. So we need to practice steadfastly, as Webu Sayadaw would say. No matter what happens, just keep going at it. It's like a person who is creating fire using two pieces of dry sticks, wooden sticks. You rub and rub and rub and you do not stop rubbing until you see smoke, but you do not stop the moment you see smoke either. You still continue a little bit more and you make sure there's enough dry grass or cotton or something that can take fire that can start quickly taking on the tiny little embers that you're creating with that friction. That friction is you applying your meditation object assiduously, care carefully every single day. And that is why I was trying to encourage you a few weeks ago and last week as well about the moment we wake up, can you put the signature of your mindfulness on the breath the moment you wake up? Even if your eyes are still shut, but you're awake. You came out of your dream state. Ah, I missed it. Oh, that becomes quicker, quicker, quicker every day. And then all of a sudden, even before you come out of your dream state, guess what? Sati is there with you, holding your hand. And then you will see the habitual tendencies 
whatever they might be. They might be worries from yesterday, a bad conversation you've had, or something that you have to deal with today. Sati says, ah, 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 ah. this is more interesting. Breath is more in interesting, or my metta is more interesting, or I'm feeling the body move in the bed. Am I all over the place, or am I, the body is more in a state of togetherness, cohesive. It's not all over the place, like a toy. But you're more aware of your limbs, your head, the position of your fingers. That is where you're bringing the Dhamma into your life. And you don't have to know many techniques, no. So, but we need to, we should know them clearly and practice them continuously. So I will pause here and uh, see if there might be some questions uh, that I will try to answer. I think there are some messages that I see here from the chat. Uh, Okay. Yeah, there are no. Okay. Uh, any questions that you might have pertaining to the practice or Dhamma related? Dante, as always, thank you for your talk. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have a question about the word energy in the factors. Uh, mm. The Buddha uses the term a surge of tireless energy. There's an article on access to insight um, by Piyadasi Terra, who when he lists the Bojangas down there, he describes energy as viraya, mm -hmm. viraya. So determination, patience and perseverance, a couple of different ways of translating uh, mm -hmm. Virya. Um, but I've also heard teachers describe the Bojangas as just another way to describe the jhana levels, the experiences are the same. Mm -hmm. So my question comes down with the word of energy um, and the Buddha said when he describes it as a burst of tireless energy and that energy then leads to joy which leads to tranquility etc through to equanimity that seems to me to relate to the process through the jhanas except that virya wouldn't fit for the energy it would be in the jhanas there'd be more the word piti would be used but piti can't be described as patience and perseverance mm -hmm. so can you give me your understanding of the word energy when it's used in the Bojangas and whether the whole concept of the Bojangas being similar to the process of the jhanas is a reasonable comparison or not? Mm -hmm. uh, good question. Again, uh, it is not a fair uh, um, comparison to make, uh, I would say, the way I have seen and experienced and understand the Sattva Bojangas to be compared uh, as being similar or the same as the jhanas. Now, having said that, when you are going through the seven factors of awakening, there are individuals who will experience the jhanas. 
as you're going through the seven factors of awakening. But not every person who goes through the jhanas necessarily will be able to experience the seven factors of awakening. Now what, because there were contemporaries of Lord Buddha. I mean, Lord Buddha, before being the Buddha, he was Siddhartha Gautama. So he was practicing the jhanas. So he was able to go through all of the jhanas, all the way to the eighth. There were no Satabhujangas there. Nowhere in the suttas have I come across any reference being made that Lord Buddha was as Siddhartha or any of the other sects, uh, the Ajivakas, uh, Niganta, Nataputta followers, any of them were practitioners of the Satabhujangas. Why do I say this? Because the seven factors of awakening, when they are balanced, they facilitate the occurrence, if you will, of Nibbana. Because there is a balancing going on. Because it has wisdom. The jhanas, if you just carry them the way they are, just jhanas, there isn't a, a factor of wisdom there. There's ekagata. There is piti. There's vitaka vichara, for example. There's sukha. So, but you don't find panya. So Lord Buddha would always take us back to the fact that his path, his dhamma, the dhamma that he was teaching and all Buddhas teach, must be based on wisdom, manifested in the form of the Four Noble Truths. And that is the teachings, the teaching of the Buddhas all throughout eternity. The Buddhas own, and that is how we are able to attain Nibbana. Without the Four Noble Truths, somewhere on the path where the person goes, now I see, you saw it in the 16 parts of the four tetrads. You saw it in the Satipatthanas. You saw it in the seven factors of awakening. Now Lord Buddha is delineating all throughout the time. There is wisdom. Wisdom must be present. Now, the jhanas also can and are often part of the path. They're not a necessity, but they are. And Lord Buddha never stops talking so highly about the jhanas. But we always have to distinguish and find the confusing you know, aspects of what has happened during the past few hundred years to the point where the commentators uh, had uh, held a very strong position, not just the commentators, but some parts of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, some of the countries, I don't want to mention them, but if you study them, you, you'll know. Uh, but uh, you see some teachers, meditative traditions, had a very strong position, or at least discouraged practitioners from going into the jhana territory. Why? Because they were afraid that the meditator would see, well, go out and away from the Dhamma and become mesmerized by these other things that happen because of the jhanas. You have the perfect example in the case of Devadatta, Lord Buddha's own cousin, who by following the instructions of Lord Buddha on how to attain the jhanas and 
to attain the jhanas per se uh, without wisdom, you don't have to necessarily follow Lord Buddha's teachings. Uh, you can also go to the Visuddhimagga and Buddha Gosha, who will happen to be not a Buddhist all his life. <laughs> he became a Buddhist later on. So he came from a Brahmanic tradition uh, where they did practice the Kasina practice. And so they were aware of the jhanas. So the discs or the Kasina practices. So Devadatta took that practice and he delved deeper and deeper until he reached the fourth jhana. Now, if the satipatthanas are not there again, you can still taste the different fruits of the, whatever the jhanas are going to offer you, minus the wisdom. This is the very clear boundary between satabhajangas and anything related with pure jhanas. So sometimes, you know, a lot of people are talking, uh, they read a book or two or go on a retreat or two, and they come up with their own conclusions based on, I don't know what. However, it's necessary for us to go back to the suttas and really read, and I'm not talking about one or two suttas that are famous or whatever, really read and uh, pay close attention to what Lord Buddha is saying in these suttas. So the wisdom has to be there, period. And by the way, uh, because he was in robes, Devadatta, uh, um, but he was using the fruits of the jhanas, in this case, the psychic, abhinyas, basically. And it was a very mediocre, gross level uh, psychic abilities. Um, he lost them because he went against Lord Buddha, against the sasana to break and create a schism in the sasana and to even topple Lord Buddha to sit in his place. Not an iota of tanya. But for all intents and purposes, if you were King Ajata Sattu, looking at Devadatta who just showed up as a 10 or 12 year old boy, standing there in front of you like a Medusa with his hair or cobras coming out of his body, you would be terrified. And also perhaps well, you have, you have the Dhamma. So he didn't. And he bowed to him. He's like, oh, what, what a great teacher you are, when he really revealed himself as a bhikkhu. But there were no, none, no element of panya at all. Um, so that is how I would approach answering that question. Uh, but before I go to uh, Lou, um, I'd like to ask Greg, whether that you find to be satisfactory, Samar? Uh, yes, of course, I liked everything you said, but it did raise a couple of other questions. If it isn't the jhanas, then can you define better for me so I'm more clear? Uh, the Sutta refers to when experiencing and while wisely investigating. What is experiencing and what is wisely investigating if it isn't meditation or is, is it meditation but just not the jhanas? What is while investigating? What is that? That is Dhamma Vichaya. That is Dhamma Vichaya, which is the seven uh, factor of awakening. Whenever we hear the word investigation, uh, it's also, uh, if you recall from a few weeks, uh, months ago when we did the Idipada. Vibhanga Sutta, where we talked about the four psychic powers or the four bases of success, the last of which is Vimansa, which is, again, 
investigation, examination. So examination denotes, implies, refers to, highlights the process of discerning something. What am I going to, and that, if we don't have that investigation, we won't know that the seesaw is all over the place. Remember the seven factors of awakening, we need to balance them. You need to have the uh, investigation, the ability to discern, to know, wait a minute, do I have too much sloth within me? Is there hindrance of, of restlessness there? Which if there is, then it means I have too much of this aspect, meaning the seven factors of awakening, you can divide them into two branches. I, I think I've mentioned this or talked about this in some previous talks, but I'll go over it briefly here. The seven factors of awakening, if you divide them, you will get roughly two groupings. One is the energizing group and the other one is the calming group. The first energizing group, uh, the, the first group, which is the energizing has within it, the effort or persevering energy. It has investigation of states and it has PT. They're much more lively. They are a doing process have that quality about them. On the other side, which is the calming, you have pasadhi, which is tranquility, you have samadhi, and you have upekka. Now, we're left with one, and that is sati. Sati sits in the middle. That's why we cannot not have sati. Sati is so important. It's so important that it is in so many formulas that Lord Buddha uh, gave us. Without sati, you will not be able to know whether you, it's time for you to apply investigation or if, whether you are applying. Now, if there is sloth, for example, or if there is tiredness, or if there's like, uh, I don't feel like, or there's a sense of drowsiness, the last thing you would want to do is to tranquilize the mind meaning to go into the calming group. Because the moment you do that, that is going to enhance that nivarana, that hindrance to really find itself home because you're gonna fall asleep. But fortunately we have the energizing group and that's where these guys come in. But how will I know that the sloth and torpor is there? Dhamma vichaya. But how will I apply Dhamma Vichaya unless I have Sati? It won't work. So Sati has to be always sharpened. So the moment you have the energizing, that indicates that you need to constantly fuel it until it creates a momentum. It's like that uh, the passenger plane that goes up to cruising uh, elevation and altitude. 33,000 feet up in the air, and it no longer has to push itself up through the clouds anymore because now it can just glide. It just needs a little bit of push here and there every once in a while, the jet engines, and then it glides over. It's the same thing if we were to use that metaphor. So the energy has to be there to give you that energy flare so that you can uh, create that momentum to come out of the inertia that the sloth was giving you. Now, when you have joy, remember joy, piti, is also part of 
the energizing group, it's lively, it's colorful, it's moving. When it's too much, well, well, when there's joy, I'm not going to add any more or too much of the energizing group, whether it's effort or whether it's, it's, it's uh, the Dhamma Vijaya, the investigation, because the investigation also creates friction. Because you're talking about a level of mind that you are being able to detect the tiniest, softest, subtlest nuances as the meditator is going deeper. So then if you have joy, even though it's such a wonderful thing, PT, I mean, how can you go wrong? But in order for us to go deeper, to reach a level of perfection, as Lord Buddha says in the sutta, we need to balance it because it's too pro predominant. It's too hyperactive if you will. So then we tap into the calming group. Now I have to coax the tranquility. I have to slowly, slowly soothe it into becoming more and more, the mind more and more collective. Because if there is pity in the mind, there, the mind is not in a state of equanimity. So it's moving. It's very slight. I mean, it can be intense. Sometimes uh, I've seen people who are so joyful, they start giggling uncontrollably, laughing uncontrollably. Well, guess what? They've, it's completely seesawed now. You're just up there, you're so lost. There is no equanimity. So that is the time where we need to encourage the mind to use the other uh, three. Any of the other three would do initially. So, but the beauty of it is, to create this sense of harmony and that harmony, when that harmony is taking place. So not one of the factors needs to become the most predominant. Mm. So there needs to be this balancing of the seesaw. And once it is balanced, the seven factors of awakening are beautifully balanced. There is Nibbana, any of the stages. How does that work? So something just occurred for me then that I didn't notice. I had always been a, thinking about the Bojangas as a sequence that we go through, and you've just mm. described it as a seesaw. So mm. I'm not going to start at the beginning and go yeah. through these things. It, yeah. It's all there at the same time in that balance you were talking about. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great. I'm glad we had this conversation because I didn't understand that. <laughs> oh, uh, but it's, it's great questions you raised. Uh, was that helpful? Oh, yes, that's made a big difference to how I'm going to be looking at this in future. Oh, okay, wonderful, wonderful. Because I had the tendency of looking at, okay, first A, then B, then C. Mm -hmm. Me too. And it would drive me through the wall, not over the wall. I would just be going crazy over this. And okay, because that would bring up my old, old OCD out. Okay, this has to be perfect. And once it is perfect, then I will go into, no, because I didn't see any elements or evidence of that in the suttas. Because in life, that doesn't, that is not the case. I mean, your nails don't grow first. Or when the child is born, the brain, the skull is so soft because you had to come out of the mother's womb. Okay, the skull had to be soft. So when the skull is becoming more and more rigid, the bones are getting, they're growing and, and they're getting more and more stiff, more rigid, but they're not the only ones that are growing, are they? The brain is growing, 
the blood vessels, the capillaries, the heart vessels, the eyes, everything is moving. So this, it's not, if, if I narrow my gaze on one, yes, I will just be focusing on that. But that doesn't negate the important fact that other things are going on at the same time. An entire biosphere of happening, if you will, that is taking place. And by us developing the discernment through sati is giving us the opportunity to look at the mind in a new light. It's an orchestra. It's a symphony. And you are, if you will, the maestro, the conductor who's standing there and you're paying attention to whatever's happening. And every piece of instrument that is playing is playing its part, important, key role in the greater symphony, to use another metaphor. So I hope uh, that was uh, good for you guys. And uh, Last quick question, though. Uh, uh -huh. This should be a short answer. My notes, when I see it, is uh, refer to the Bojangas as Sambojanga for seven mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. You've been referring to Satabojanga. I assume that's just a different way of saying the same thing, or is there a difference? Yeah, sang, sang, sang or samma, it's like complete, it's a, a whole, but it's not seven. Satta is seven, the number seven. So I usually use, oh, okay. sometimes people say just the, it's like the completion of the uh, bojangas or the seven factors. They don't say seven, they would say the whole factors of awakening. And that is another way of saying it without using the letter, the number seven. But when I'm referring it, I try to give you the poly fullest version of the poly so that becomes part of your lexicon so um but they're the same thank you uh lou yes please go ahead uh, thank you very much um well i am really really new eh? this is my second uh, participation on the sessions mm -hmm. uh, but um, I have been practicing since the 8th of um, December mm -hmm. uh, specifically uh, with the uh, two videos where you give a very interesting and very uh, new to me uh, indications for meta mm practice. Kalanyamita um, Damadina uh, sent me one of the videos and then in your channel I also discovered a second one that you offer to Italian friends mm -hmm. and that was also very helpful to me because Italian and Spanish you know we have a lot in common in mm -hmm. many ways. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, what I wish to express is that it was very difficult for me before to, let's say, practice meta. Uh, you know, in this kind of, yes, like, as you express, cognitive way. So I did have resistance to that mm. for a long, long time. And I was focusing in other tools of the mm. teachings, you know, and finding benefits. Mm. Since I have been practicing on these 10 days, I have noticed benefits, 
but I just want to confirm that what I am doing is all right, is correct, you know, because it's so new to this constitution, body, mind, you know, I may be, who knows what I am doing. <laughs> so I will briefly explain what I do and what is going on briefly with the practice. So, uh, yes, usually when I sit, I just feel, you know, the body, the position, a bit of a scanning, how are things going on, you know, like the mind is busy or not, mm -hmm. or some breathing, you know, some sort of introduction, check mm -hmm. up what's going on. Okay. And then I have been practicing complete sessions as you recommended minimum 45 minutes or so with Meta. So I go to the image. I have a beautiful yeah, image from childhood with my granny, Abuelita, eh, Abuela Aurelia. So for me, that immediately brings, oh, you know, <laughs> these uh, Vedanas, very beautiful, oh, yes, like, joy and tenderness and appreciation together then that gives me the opportunity to be in the body with the vedana and observing the different types of constable warm tender vedana then i already have my spiritual friend a female spiritual friend mm -hmm. And yes, uh, I know her. She has, she's a true friend. So with the qualities that I really appreciate. So I am able to uh, minimize her, like the image and the expression, and put her in my heart, as you said, as a seat, you know, in miniature. And then I stay there with this beautiful expression for my friend and this Vedana, right? This, this loving Vedana. Mm -hmm. Then of course, from time to time come some distractions. Mm -hmm. When I am able to discover that, that's when I use the six R's, mm -hmm. which I have already learned by heart <laughs> and easy to detect. Then, when I complete the six stages peacefully of the six R's, then again, I return to Meta with the same process, starting with Granny, the image, and then my friend. Mm -hmm. My question is, is that okay? Is that looking okay? <laughs> that and your smile on your face um say a lot and i have not heard anything that i would say you're doing something wrong but i would just ask this how does it feel compared to how it was before the eight days or ten days to now as you're doing this how is the mind feeling the brain how does it feel Yes, I have experienced changes. Mm. Uh, so 
I mean, actually, there is a, like a freshness mm. and some lightness. Mm -hmm. And even when I have had a few interactions with others, because now we are again taking care because of COVID, mm. the new variant, mm -hmm. but I have been like helpful whenever I have been able or to detect when I can give a hand or receptive. Mm. I, I feel a bit more receptive. Mm. Uh, but yes, I notice, uh, yes, some sort of, uh, yeah, um, lightness or yeah. simplicity and appreciation of small things, something like that. I'm not too sure. It's a beautiful bouquet of experiences, uh, sentiments that you shared, and all of which, um, that simplicity that you mentioned. Uh, the Dhamma doesn't need to be complicated, but we try to complicate that. We complicate things with our views, our expectations. This is how my experience has to be. Now, the key thing or the encouragement that I always try to remind myself and my students with uh, or by is this. Can I maintain or can I bring back every at every sitting this same mindset of a beginner? Yeah. Yes. Can I have a simple approach? Lord Buddha, I don't think that many people would recognize Lord Buddha, if we got into a time machine and went to India 2,600 years ago, we will try probably hard to find Lord Buddha when we are looking in the midst of his Arya Savakas, because he didn't look much different unless the person really probed and looked with their heart, mm -hmm. because there was a simple simplicity about them. There wasn't this haughty, this, you know, I am a bhikkhu, I'm a chief disciple, I am the Buddha, I am this. Mm -hmm. There's a softness to it. Yeah. There's a sharpness to it also. Yeah. There's an alertness that goes from moment to moment to moment. And never is there a moment where things are being taken for granted. So... I encourage you, I, I, I am really happy that the practice is working for you, of course, uh, yes. when it comes to individual personal experiences that uh, I'd like to hear from uh, practitioners, I'd rather you have that be done in a private. Uh, we can do that, don't worry, this, this was fine because I found it, what you were sharing to be very pertinent and even helpful and encouraging for your own friends here, uh, Kalyana Mitras, who are practitioners. And um, so this is wonderful. And, uh, but if there are more questions or things come up, don't shy away from sending a note and I will make time for you. Um, and we will uh, address those. Uh, but you seem like you're going uh, well, so continue working, continue Good. being soft, applying yeah. the teachings again and again and most importantly come back to the body when you get lost come yeah. back to the body come back and just again from the heart quickly okay no agendas 
no agendas. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes. Yes. Continue. Okay. Continue. Excellent. So I continue, and if I need any further instructions, then I can send an email to you. Yes. That's the best way. Yes. 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 We can. We can do that, and we can do a Zoom, you and I, and uh, and I'll. Uh, I'll say what needs to be said, depending yeah. on what is happening. Yes. Okay. So I apologize if I express anything that, uh, no, no. you know, could affect any of the Kalanyamitas here. No, no, no it, need it for apologies. It was apology. just because it's so new. So, and uh, as you said in one of the videos, take 10 days. And when I look and I said, oh, today is the 18th. <laughs> Maybe this is the right moment to check if Very these good. 10 days uh, I am, you know, uh, mm. doing more or less something adequate or useful for me and for others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a term in uh, the qualifiers of the Dhamma where it is uh, in Pali, it is Pachatang Veditabo Vinuhi, which means it is to be realized by the wise for themselves, by themselves. This is where we can taste the Dhamma for ourselves. You don't have to rely on someone else's report, not even the Buddha. Um, so if the Lord Buddha's teaching is not applicable in my life right now, by me, tasted, to be tasted by yeah. me, then really it's pointless. It's like any other religion out there. Yes. But the Dhamma is life transforming right here. That's why it is akaliko, which means it is timeless. So, um, so I commend you for your work and no need to for apologies uh, at this point. <laughs> uh, but uh, please uh, do reach out and... Um, and as needed, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll share some thoughts with you on your practice and move you right along. Just continue doing what you're doing. Sounds like it's going well, beautifully. Okay. Thank very you good. very much mm -hmm. to you, of course, and to everybody for this beautiful group. Yeah, Wonderful. I feel uh, this is a good space. Thank you very much. I'm glad. And, and uh, we appreciate those sentiments and, uh, and I appreciate you all. Uh, any any other questions or thoughts that we might have? Still, we went over the two-hour marker again. <laughs> so, if there are none, uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, share some merits? May suffering ones be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be upon you, with you, and your loved ones. And may you keep and retain the softness of your heart as you practice diligently without holding back and applying these principles that you're learning of the Dhamma. 
without taking anything for granted, especially your smile. And I'll see you next week. Uh, we will resume uh, for next week. We will, it will be the two-hour sitting meditation followed by a Dhamma talk. And then the following week, we will have, again, uh, the suttas. Uh, I think it will be uh, the Punnovada Sutta from the Majjhimanikaya. Uh, I think so. Uh, so take care and I'll see you next week. Be well. <laughs>